Now what? You've accomplished something big, um, or something big has happened to you, and you know, the initial kind of whoa or wow is past. You're in that moment, the afterglow is beginning to fade, and you're like going, now what? What do I do now? Well, you know, you could go get some shawarma. No fans here of Marvel Cinematic Universe, okay? <laughs> I thought that would be funnier, sorry. Um, obviously, I need to develop my sense of humor a little bit more, or I'm just stuck. Any major experience in your life has the ability to shape you. You've heard the cliche that experience is the best teacher. I would add to it that it's not experience is the best teacher, not at all. It's analyzed experience or applied experience that is the best teacher. Those positive life change can result from experiences and events that you've had so that you don't continue repeating the same sort of mistakes or wasting time the same sort of way. And that's really the crux of what we see here in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 is Paul writing to his son in the ministry, Titus, who has been sent to the island of Crete in order to raise up elders for the churches, like house churches, around the island of Crete and make sure they observe sound doctrine and that the sound doctrine informs the living of sound lives. And so he's giving them specific instructions of how they are supposed to live. In chapter 1, he talked about sound doctrine and watching out for false teacher and having the right kind of men ordained as elders, which follows that sound doctrine, sound life. Chapter 2, he talked about Christian behavior in the home and among other Christ followers. In chapter 3, the first few verses that we're covering today, he's talking about how Christians should live in the world. That having trusted God, the now what should be how you live your life. That there should be a difference that is observable in the life of a Christ follower versus a regular Joe out on the street or a regular Joanne. And so if you are able to join me in standing in the honor of reading God's Word, would you stand now as we read Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Pray with me. God, our Father, we open your word again 
And as we hear these teachings, we agree. But we also have some questions, some considerations, and we're wondering what it is that you might teach us today. I pray that that's our heart, that we come before you humble and teachable, open, with a brokenness of our spirit, realizing our own sinfulness, confession of where we have sin, repentance and a desire to turn from that sin, and a willingness to receive what you teach us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So last night, we had hamburgers because it was a beautiful night outside, and we had some ground beef, and let's cook some hamburgers, right? And, you know, all the fixings were laid out on the counter, so you'd get your burger, you'd get your, uh, everything fixed on your burger, and then go over to the table and set it down and start to eat. Well, one of our party decided to go back to the kitchen from the table to get something, and our dog, Hudson... Hudson's a golden doodle. He's about this tall and about this long. He's 40 pounds. And uh, he's learned that if he puts his front paws up on the table, his mouth is just high enough to get something off the table. So now you can see exactly where my story is going, right? A burger was left on the table. Everybody's in the kitchen or in the living area, and Hudson kind of creeps over, and I see him. I go, no, Hudson, no, and he just goes, yoink. I ran around the back of the table, and I, I'm sorry to admit, I swatted him harder than I've ever swatted him before in my life. I think I've maybe hit him three times in his five-year-old life, and I tried to wrench open his jaw. He's going, because there's, you know, he didn't growl at me, but there's a burger in his mouth. I'm trying to rip it out, and I threw it on the floor, and I grabbed him with ketchup on my hands by the collar and drug him outside and said, bad dog, bad dog, and connected him to his cord, and he was out there. The rest of the meal, he's out there scratching at the door. Can I come in? Can I come in? Stay outside, bad dog. He knew what he did was wrong. He knew it was wrong before he did it. He knows he's not supposed to eat food off the table or get up or anything like that. But that burger smelled so good. It must have been because I followed John Mark's advice and put a little pat of butter on each one to make it a butter burger like Culver's, right? That that was it. No more butter on burgers at our house. But that leads to the first question on your outline. And that is, how should Christ followers behave? We know, if you've been at church a little bit or a lot, the basics of how you're supposed to behave as a follower of Jesus. I mean, in general, do what Jesus did. Don't do what Jesus didn't do. Love other people. Don't be selfish. Don't be hateful. Don't sin, you know, and we can name off all these things. We can maybe even quote verses. And we know that there's a certain standard. It's like when the Butterburger is right there and we can go, yoink, and we think nobody will see it. God sees it. I love it when people try to hide things from me as a pastor because they think, oh, the pastor's coming. He can't see that I'm smoking a cigarette or drinking a beer or something like that. And I'm going, who cares? God sees you all the time. I'm just a man. I'm not the one that judges you. We have a standard of behavior. And in the first two verses there of Titus chapter 1, in a general sense, what that standard of behavior is. Paul says, remind the people. So that remind is a present tense imperative. In other words, he's saying, keep on reminding them. 
It may be like saying, I've told them already and you've told them already and they know they should be doing better, but they need to be reminded. How many of you are parents and continually remind your children of the same things? Yes. The rest of you aren't paying attention or maybe your parents or your kids are just really good. But I feel like there's some things that I remind my children of and God probably feels like there's some things he reminds me of, right? Let's be honest. And I imagine if my mom and dad were to come visit, they'd say, there's some things we'd still like to remind you of too. Amen. 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 (laughs) Look at what it says there. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. So this is a specific sort of behavior that Paul is talking about here, that as Christ followers, you ought to be subject to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Subject is your attitude. Obedience is your action. Paul is saying right here, as he also says in Romans chapter 13, and he also says in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to write those down, Romans 13, 1 through 17, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, talk about the Christian's responsibility to our governing authorities over us, that we are to be submissive in our attitudes, but we are to be obedient in our actions. Now, certainly we can make a case from the New Testament that if a government is doing something that is immoral or sinful, we don't have to follow that. But in general, we as Christ followers should participate in following our governing authorities. And what's the summary statement there? And be ready to do whatever is good, that we should participate. And this may be the very reason, that summary statement, why some in our church family and some that we know as followers of Jesus vote for a certain candidate in a certain party and others vote for a certain candidate in a other party because they think this one's going to do the best good based on their read of scripture. Now, I'm not going to debate that today. I'm just saying when we consider how we submit, how we obey, how we do what is good and participate in our government, Paul's saying That as Christ followers, we ought to behave in such a way that is exemplary, even in relation to the governing authorities. Now, verse 2 gets on to more general behaviors is how you relate to anybody. Look at what it says there, to slander no one. The Greek word there literally is the word we have translated blaspheme. That's to speak badly about somebody, right? And then he says to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards all men. Being peaceable and considerate is being deferential to others. I don't know about you. I'd rather hang out with somebody who's peaceable and considerate, deferential to me, rather than somebody who's mean to me or, uh, you know, got a bad spirit about them. And he says, and to show true humility to all men. You've heard me say before that I believe humility is the foundation, the bedrock of Christian character. Because when you're humble, then all other character qualities can grow up out of that humility. And so what Paul is saying here in this summary statement of verses 1 and 2 of how to behave as a Christ follower, now that you're a Christ follower, what do you do? Well, you should live good in relation to the governing authorities, but also live humble in relation to anybody you meet. So we move from this general statement to the next six questions you have on your outline actually are six different points about salvation. It's about one commentator, John Stott, called it the ingredients of salvation. Now, John R.W. Stott's a brilliant man, and he's not from here because he has two middle initials, right? John R.W. Stott. But 
The first point here is about the need of salvation. And that's what you have as the second question on your outline. And that's the question, why do I need to be saved? That's answered in verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Um, that's a pretty ugly picture. We know that Scripture says that the heart's deceitful above all things and beyond cure, and who can understand it? We know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and if we're honest, we'd admit that we're all sinful. But when you look at the wicked picture that Paul paints here, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, and generally we don't think of ourselves that way. The problem is for most of us that we've lived a good life long enough Our mom and dad taught us decent values, and even before we trusted Christ as our Savior, we knew right from wrong, and we knew how to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and we knew how to obey and do the things that were expected of us. We may not have lived a life that was abject and sinful as far as the biblical standards or even the world's standards, but maybe you have. Maybe even as a follower of Jesus, you've walked away from Jesus, you've slipped back into sinfulness, you've struggled with some behavior, maybe some addiction, or something that has divided you from others, and you've had unforgiveness and evil and wickedness in your hearts, and you know how exceedingly sinful you are, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. You think about what governs your thoughts and your decisions. Is it your passions and pleasures? What feels good for you? What makes you look good? Your selfishness and pride at the root of it? And lived in malice and envy. These are some terrible things here. The question we had there was, why do I need to be saved? My car recently started squeaking. And it sounded to me um, like it was squeaking on the right side, Because when I would roll down the windows or crack it, I could hear it out my right ear, right? Not my left so much. And you could only hear it when you were going more slowly because then you didn't have the road noise from the tires and the wind and everything like that. So generally, like in the morning, I back out of the driveway and I'd hear squeak, 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 squeak. And I'd get going and then you wouldn't be able to hear the squeak. But then we get to the drop-off line for John Mark to go to school, and as we're going slowly, I'd hear squeak, squeak, squeak. And, you know, then the squeak would go slower or faster depending on my speed until you couldn't hear the squeak anymore. So finally, I called up my mechanic. I said, I have a squeak. And I'm afraid it's probably like a brake or something like that because it squeaks repeatedly. Can I bring it in? I bring it in to my mechanic. My mechanic says, sure enough, yeah, you know, your emergency brake, which I'm in the habit of pulling because I drove a standard for so long. When I park on a hill, I still pull that e-brake, right? He says, the cable on that is just worn out. And because of that, your um, brakes were uh, rubbing against the, where they shouldn't be there, the, the brake pads on, what do you call that, rotor, drum, something. I've got disc brakes. And he said, so I pulled those brakes off of there. So he said, as long as you remember not to pull that e-brake anymore, it'll be fine. The very next day, I pulled the e-brake again out of habit. And then I heard squeak, 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 squeak. So I got a squeaky car again. My point, however, is I knew that something was wrong with my car. And I knew I didn't have the intelligence or the ability to fix it. 
you know, because I'm not an auto mechanic. That's why I pay guys who are smart to do that. And I love these guys. They're like automobile detectives. You give them a problem, they figure it out, they fix it, and then they tell you all about it. And they have a certain joy about them. And I love that. But when we're lost and when we're controlled by all these sinful behaviors, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, passions, pleasures, malice, envies, hating, we know we are. What should we do? Just like taking my car to the auto mechanic, you need to take yourself in and you need to say, okay, I need somebody other than me that knows how to fix this to fix that. And that's where we come next with our next question. And that's where does salvation come from? Where does salvation come from is our third question, but it's in verse 4. And it says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, the kindness and love... Kindness is a generosity of spirit that lifts others up and sees them. The love that is written right here is the phileo. And it's actually a big long word that starts with phileo where we get our English word philanthropic or philanthropy. Somebody that gives to others. And so it's saying when God recognized we needed it, God gave out of his love the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. This is where salvation comes from. It's not anything I can do on my own by good works and following rules. It's only available through God and His Son, Jesus. Now, we move to our next point, our next question, but we've got our Scripture memory verse of the month up there yet. And that Scripture memory verse of the month that uh, we're going to put on the screen is actually the fourth question comes from this verse 5. So let's read it together. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5. That leads to the question, your fourth question on your outline, What are the conditions of salvation? What are the conditions of salvation? If we know we got a squeak and we go in to get saved and, uh, you know, sinfulness is our squeak and we know where salvation comes from, God, our Savior, gives it to us through Jesus. What are the conditions in which someone is saved? The grounds that salvation rests on. Last night, I was talking with Jason about um, their trip and seeing azaleas, right, Jason? And I said, you know, I tried to plant an azalea bed at my house in Texas. We had this large tree in our backyard, and it provided ample shade, and I built up this bed with the kind of acidic-type soil that I bought by the bag until my little Saturn car rode like this down the road. Um, And I made this bed, and I had the soaker hose through there, and I made sure I tried to keep enough Um, moisture in there, and I planted this azalea bed that I thought would be a beautiful scene when looking out into our backyard. It didn't work. I don't know, it was too doggone hot in Texas, not humid enough in Texas, too much shade. I mean, I had the right kind of soil. I studied everything. I read everything. I did everything I was supposed to do, but the azaleas kind of did, and, you know, they didn't live, much less flourish like I hoped to. They didn't have the right kind of ground to grow up from, the right kind of conditions around them. They were not in a 
southern forests where they had more humidity and not too much heat like in Texas, and ground that they're made to grow in versus ground that I bought from bags at you know, Home Depot. The conditions that were needed. Look at verse 5 there, the beginning. It says there that He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. When we try to earn salvation, what we're really doing is elevating ourselves by keeping certain rules, by doing certain habits, certain practices, then we're the one earning our salvation, which really is demonstrating our sinfulness, isn't it? It's our pride that we earned it. So there's that negative, it's not because of righteous things we have done. And then you get the positive, but because of His mercy. That God saved us, not because we deserved it, but because of His mercy. There's a love there, a generosity of there. We can't earn salvation on our own. Even the Bible shows us that it's not to show people how they could save themselves, but that they could not save themselves and they needed a Savior. That's what the law was about, the Old Testament was about in the entirety of the Bible. We can't do it on our own. We need a Savior. And salvation only comes through God dealing with our sins. Read John chapter 3. Read Romans chapter 5. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and see how God brings salvation to us. That it grows from the ground on the basis of His mercy, not anything we did. Let's get to our fifth question there. Your fifth question is how does God save us? How does God save us? I don't know about you. I'd like to figure out how. Although sometimes figuring out how takes longer than you think it's going to take, right? Like installing uh, appliances at my house on last Saturday. I thought, oh, a couple hours to install the appliances. No. Eight hours later, I think I was finished. Because I'd never done it before, I needed to study the how. And I wanted to get things right. And you got to measure things right and cut things right and put things in right in order that they'll be right, right? I mean, you can't just do this. You need some help. You need to know how. When it comes to how God saves us, that's in that latter part of verse 5. Notice what it says there. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Then verse 6 goes on and it tells us more about the Holy Spirit. It says, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, obviously you can guess there's some debate here. There are some theologians that because the word washing is used, think that, oh, that must mean baptism. Because baptism, you put someone under the water like when you wash a dish or something like that, right? And there could be a case made for that. But then look at the next part. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the other case is that it's the Holy Spirit that is evidence of our salvation. The Holy Spirit acts on us in order to be saved. And that washing actually occurs as a result of our rebirth, not in order for us to be reborn. So it's which came first, the washing of rebirth that gave us the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit coming into us that led to the washing of rebirth. 
Theologically speaking and conservatively, biblically speaking, it's easier to believe and it's less problematic that it was the Holy Spirit who saved us and therefore washed us. So even though it's written one way in your English Bible, the way that it's written in a Greek Bible with the emphasis would indicate that it's the act of the Holy Spirit. That's how God saves us. He saves us by the Holy Spirit who moves on us and washes us from our sins and we are reborn. And the Holy Spirit then is a sign, a symbol, a guarantee that we are renewed in Christ because we have the Holy Spirit within us and that God, then he says, poured him out generously on us. It's interesting that Paul in the epistles uses this phrase, poured out of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, not in the epistles, the pastorals, 14 different times, just in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and third Timothy. There's a lot of Holy Spirit needed when you're standing against the world is what it seems to indicate. When you're living life in a sinful world, when you're trying to demonstrate the salvation that you've received from God, you need the Holy Spirit in you who God has poured out on you like water. So how does God save us? He saves us because of His mercy and by the Holy Spirit. And so you've got your sixth question next. That sixth question are, what are the results of salvation? We talked about our need for salvation. We talked about the grounds for salvation, the means for salvation. We talked about how He saved us, but now we're getting to the results. That if you are a saved person, if you are a follower of Jesus, there ought to be a difference in your life. People ought to be able to look at you and see a difference. Now, we have or try to give evidence of things in our life all the time. Some of us you can look at because, you know, maybe on their shirt they have a little logo for something. I see Bill Johnson back there has a big iron N on his shirt. He's a Husker fan. Go Big Red. You know, I I see another person in our congregation has the name of a presidential candidate written on their face mask. Yeah. And, you know, maybe on the back of your car you have decals for things. Maybe you wear T-shirts or caps that show your loyalty to a sports team or a certain product. And maybe even the way you describe yourself on social media, um, like uh, i got to show you mine. My Twitter, I call myself a Jesus follower, a family lover, a joyful pastor. I love you all. A thoughtful writer when I write, a specialized writer, that's my bicycle brand, a Volvo driver, that's my car. It says something about me, right? I'm practical. An Oreo eater because of processed food, Oreos are my favorite. Anybody else? No one likes Oreos? Thank you. Margot likes Oreos. Weston, have some Oreo eater friends. When I find some, I'll bring them to your house since you're my friends. Some good ones, that is. I'm a golden doodle master. I already told you about Hudson and how that master stuff's working out, right? And the last thing I wrote about myself, I am an exceptional sleeper. Can I get an amen? I'm good at sleeping. I tell my family not to be mad at me because God gave me the gift of sleep. There are some results of your salvation, some things people ought to be able to see that make you different, that stand out, that identify you. And so look then in verse 7, so that, he says, you know I love the so that, having been justified by grace, so made right, balanced on the scales of good and bad, of God's justice, been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Did you catch that? 
Even though there are lots of words there, and it's the action of being justified, made right, the past tense of our salvation, that we were saved and brought into a right relationship with God. You know, the present tense of our salvation is that we're being sanctified, being made more like Jesus. The future tense of our salvation is that we will be glorified and saved from the presence of sin in heaven. But he says here, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's the result of salvation. That because of our hope of eternal life, we're heirs. And because we're heirs, we live as heirs. We live as Christ's followers because Christ saved us. We realize what we were saved from, and therefore we live differently. And we identify ourselves as Christ's followers. You may not wear a cap with a Jesus fish on it. You may not wear t-shirts with Jesus slogans or scripture verses. You may not have bumper stickers with scriptures or, you know, follow me to heaven or something cheesy like that on the back of it. But... Does your life demonstrate you're a follower of Jesus? We get to that final question. The seventh question on your outline today, and that is, how can I identify a Christ follower? That's verse 8. It's a longer verse compared to some of these other ones. And it starts with the phrase, this is a trustworthy saying. Now, when Paul uses this phrase, this is a trustworthy saying, it may be that the saying he's used was already accepted in the church, like it was uh, a known saying, like poetic, or from a hymn, or maybe that it was even a creedal type saying, you know, like we say, growing Christ followers around here, that whatever comes after this is a trustworthy saying is something that church would readily know, like, you know, I love to sow that, or something like that, or otherish things I say regularly. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. So in other words, he's ringing the bell to say, if you haven't paid attention, pay attention now. I'm bringing it home here. Listen to what I'm saying. Ding, 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 ding. And what I want you to stress these things. What things? The last few things or all the things? Um, commentators disagree on that, and they tend to say, however, it's everything that he's written to uh, Titus. He's, he's coming to conclusion here. You can look and see there's just a few more verses after this, right? And he says, I want you to stress these things, so that, there's the so that again, those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You heard that up in verse 1. Verse 1, it said in reference to Governing authorities that we should do whatever is good. And now he's bringing it around in conclusion here in verse 8 as he ties up this thought unit together. And he says, they be careful to doing what is good. And he's talking in general to all people here. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. In other words, when we're good, they're general profitable for everyone. They're profitable for us as the person who's doing them. They're profitable for those that we are doing them to. Paul's saying, you ought to live a life that identifies you as a Christ follower. As the title of my sermon today indicated, having trusted God. That because you have trusted God, there should be a difference in your life that demonstrates you've trusted God. So our question really then is in my life this morning, Where do I show myself to be like Jesus? And hopefully that list is like pretty good and long. And then the other side of that question, of course, 
Kind of like an interview question, right? What are your strengths? Oh, you name off your strengths and you know they're going to ask, what are your weaknesses, right? But the other side of that question is, where do I not look like Jesus yet? Where am I still struggling with sins and there's this issue? And Where do I still easily get bothered or angry and there's this situation or this heart attitude? And so even though you know you look like Jesus and you behave like Jesus in these ways, these things still dog you and bring you down. And it seems to be the things that the world and the devil takes advantage of, pushing on your hot buttons so that you fall into sin. Now you could take that sinfulness and get down on yourself and say, I'm good for nothing. Why would Jesus love me and save me? I'm just going to do what the world does, live as I've always lived. Or you could take it And say, it just demonstrates my need for Jesus. It demonstrates my need for the Holy Spirit. And humble yourself and say, God, I still need your help with this. Even though I've walked with Jesus all these years, and even though I'm like Jesus in these areas, these few areas, I still need help. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come before you now, and we know that because we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, there should be a difference in our life. That we should act differently and think differently. Yet we have to admit we still struggle. So Father, wherever it is we struggle, may we honestly give that to you today. Confess to you what is wrong. Repent and turn away from that thing. Maybe it's that we need to seek accountability and encouragement. Maybe we need some knowledge to help us understand how we get into that sin and how we avoid that sin. Whatever it is, God, would you move among us? And God, if there's anyone here today who's never trusted Jesus as their Savior and Lord, would they make that decision today to talk with me, to talk to someone before they leave? It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.